Okay, normally we stand and read the word, but today um, I'm going to just play this movie, The Gospel of John on YouTube, and uh, I'm going to let the whole thing go from chap all of chapter 9, because uh, when you watch it, it just makes more sense to go from 1 to 41, instead of reading a portion of it, you get the feel of the, of the text, and of course taking uh, improvisation and ad-libbing to what they think the scenes would have been like. And I think they, they do a really good job of depicting what it might have been like for, for Jesus healing this blind man in chapter 9. So we'll, we'll, we'll watch this instead of reading, reading it today. And uh, here we go. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind. Teacher, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Was it his own or his parents' sin? His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. He is blind so that God's power might be seen at work in him. As long as it is they, he must keep on doing the work of him who sent me. Night is coming. And no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light for the world. Shalom and wash my face. So I went. And 
as soon as I washed. I could see. Where is he? I don't know. Then they took to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. The day that Jesus made the mud and cured him of his blindness was a Sabbath. the man again how he had received his sight. He put some mud on my eyes. I washed my face and now I can see. A man who did this cannot be from God. He does not obey the Sabbath law. How could a man who is a sinner perform such miracles as these? And there was division among them. You say he cured you of your blindness. Well, what do you say about him? He is a prophet. The Jewish authorities, however, were not willing to believe that he had been blind and could now see until they called his parents. Is this your son? You say that he was born blind. How is it then that he can now see? We know that he is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But we don't know how it is that he is now able to see, nor do we know who cured him of his blindness. Ask him. He is old enough and he can answer for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities who had already agreed that anyone who said he believed that Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is old enough, ask him. A second time, they called back the man who had been born blind. Promise before God that you will tell the truth. We know that this man who cured you is a sinner. I do not know if he is a sinner or not. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. What did he do to you? How did he cure you of your blindness? I have already told you and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Maybe you too would like to be his disciples. They insulted him and said, You are that fellow's disciple. But we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for that fellow, however, we do not even know where he comes from. What a strange thing that is. You do not know where he comes from, but he cured me of my blindness. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He does listen to people who respect him and do what he wants them to do. Since the beginning of the world, nobody has ever heard of anyone giving sight to a person born blind. Unless this man came from God, he would not be able to do a thing. You were born and brought up in sin. And you are trying to teach us. And they expelled him from the synagogue. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Tell me who he is, sir, so that I can believe in him. You have already seen him. And he is the one who is talking with you now. I believe, Lord. And he 
knelt down before Jesus. I came to this world to judge, so that the blind should see, and those who see should become blind. Some Pharisees who were there with him heard him say this and asked him, Surely you don't mean that we are blind too. If you were blind, then you would not be guilty. But since you claim that you can see, this means that you are still guilty. The great thing about this is that uh, that's word for word from the Bible. Like they're not, there's not like improvising and adding words in between. Like it's pretty much the straight across translation. So when when you when you read or see that, it just makes a lot of sense, and it's a very uh, it gets you emotionally involved in the text, which is great. Because sometimes when we read it, we don't make the emotional connections to the same degree. So I think they do a wonderful job. Same reason why the Passion Play and Drum Hell are so good, because they they read right from the text of the Bible. It changes nothing. But when they act it out, it connects you to the word. So, so that's the entire chapter nine in one sitting. And originally, when I began the the healing of the blind man in chapter nine, the, the intent of the whole thing was to do it in one sermon. I had one sermon prepared, and then uh, here we are, week uh, sermon number three, uh, finishing it. And it, the whole thing became a a, um, a three part series after a conversation I had with Callie. Because Callie had told me she'd been having a dialogue with somebody, and they asked the question, if God is truly loving and has a deep desire to be known by people, why doesn't he make himself more known to people and more obvious by revealing himself in more supernatural ways? Why doesn't he act more tangibly in this world to, to make himself known? And the, the timing of the question was awesome, because as I got asked that question, I was thinking about it, um, I started studying chapter 9 for our church. And I realized here that uh, Jesus acted in a very tangible, very supernatural way by healing this man, and only one person came to a saving faith. Everyone else rejected him, his neighbors, the religious leaders, his own family. I started thinking, maybe it has nothing to do with God acting tangibly for why someone comes to faith or not. And if this is indicative of human response 2,000 years ago, which I think it is, it's the same reason those, those, that those lessons have been applied to us today for why maybe God doesn't act more like that. And, but he does. He still does act in those ways. But it's interesting that the presumption behind the logic of the question was if God acted supernaturally, consistently, and in these kind of ways, there'd be a revival going on in our world. Um, but we see from this that actually it caused division and not unity and it caused rejection and not revival. But there was one man that did come to genuine faith, and we have to look at him today, which is that blind, the former blind beggar. And in our words, in our culture, you would say this, this was the only man that became a Christian, if you want to use our vernacular, how we respond. So while I'm going to spend a lot of time today uh, dealing with why I think this guy came to true, genuine faith, I'm not going to focus on it as the, as the main sort of... Um, uh, lesson as of, um, let me try that again. Yeah, I'm not going to focus on why I think he came to faith, even though I'm going to highlight it. I actually, when preparing for this Sunday, began to notice things that I think are more relevant for us to understand in our church. You see, 
when I started to study this guy, I saw markers in his life and character traits in his life that showed genuine, a genuine Christian relationship with God. See, he, had, he didn't have nominal faith. Like, he wasn't a church attender and sort of did the, like the, the, the rituals. This guy had a saving faith. And there were markers in his life that showed and demonstrated that he was a genuine, became a genuine Christian, a genuine believer. And I thought, well, if this was present in his life, we need to look at these to see what God's looking for in our lives as well. So the first marker in this guy that showed genuine faith was a, uh, a willingness to speak freely and openly about Jesus Christ. A willingness to speak openly and freely about Jesus Christ. And I'll give you three examples. The first one is in verse 8 to 11. Um, it says, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, No, this is he. And others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. And then they were saying to him, Well, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who's called Jesus made clay, then anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And I washed, and I went away, and received sight. See, when the neighbors asked how you were healed, and who healed you, they didn't shrink back from declaring Jesus did it. They gave Jesus credit as the healer. You might think, well, what other option did he have? Like, like duh, like, no kidding. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that there, he actually had two other options available. And I bring these options up because we see them in the text of other people's response. The first one was um, the parents. They, when asked if Jesus, if they knew how he was um, healed and who healed him, they denied that they actually knew. You saw a great clip of that in the video. But when you see uh, in verse uh, 18, or 20, they said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Which was an absolute lie. They did know because the son had previously told them. But we learn in verse 22 that his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. So they're afraid of rejection. That's a big kick out of the synagogue. And, 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 the, and the social life of the Israelites, that's why they denied. So it had nothing to do with not knowing that Jesus was a healer. It was fear of rejection in their community that made them say this. So this guy had that option. He could have said, you know what, I, I do see, I was born blind, but I really don't know who healed me. He could have done exactly what the parents did, but he didn't. That's important. Second option, he could have admitted also that he was healed, and he could have admitted how he was healed, but attributed the miracle to someone else other than Jesus. Where do I get this from? That was what the Pharisees wanted him to say. They wanted to attribute, it, to attribute the miracle to someone else. Look in 24 and 25. So a second time they called the man who had been born blood and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man's a sinner. So the Pharisees desired that this guy would stand publicly and say, I know who healed me, God did it, not Jesus, he's a sinner. But he wouldn't do that. He said, no, Jesus was the one who healed me. <laughs> and when they wanted and this phrase, give glory to God, they're basically saying to this man, in, our, in I guess in our words, remember, buddy, God sees and hears you. Um, so treat, treat the situation like you're accountable to him and stop lying through your teeth and give credit to where credit is due. 
So it's significant, I think, that the blind man said, no, there's no other option here. Uh, I'm going to proclaim and publicly profess that Jesus was the one who changed my life. That's a significant. The second area where he spoke freely and openly about Christ was during his first interrogation with the Pharisees in verses 15 to 17. Um, In 15, this is what it says. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He, he, Jesus, applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, Well, this man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, Well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? There was a division among them. And so they turned to him and said, Well, who do you think, um, who do you say Jesus is? And he says in verse 17, He's a prophet. You see, the Pharisees had no issue speaking openly and freely about their thoughts about Jesus. He was a violator of the Mosaic Law, um, which would have been a stonable offense, because he he did it on the Sabbath, the healing on the Sabbath. And he was certainly not from God, because he did that. But when they asked the blind man to weigh in, he said, he's a prophet. Well, this is a significant title, because the Jews knew that prophets were appointed by God. So you couldn't try out to be a prophet. It wasn't like... Here's a job application, profit. And so you went and uh, you put in your resume, you had an interview, and it's like, oh, you look like a good prophet. This was not the case at all. Prophets were appointed positions by God. Again, it wasn't like the priesthood. The priesthood you got in because of bloodline. If you came from Aaron's bloodline, like Moses' brother, you automatically were a Levite, you became a, a priest because of bloodline. Again, there was no trials for, for priesthood, it was purely uh, ancestry. But prophets were ancestry. It was God ordained, come in, tell you that you're going to be my prophet. Isaiah was like that. Elijah was like that. Moses was like that. And this guy's saying, he's sent by God. Why is that important? Because the religious authorities are the ones he's speaking to. And they openly and freely deny that he's not sent from God or appointed by God. He says, no, you're wrong. This guy, I can, I'm a defender of Jesus' identity. I know his character, and this guy is a prophet he's sent by God. And, and Leon Morris is a great commentator, commentator. I like the way he said it. He said, his answer to the Pharisees put Jesus in the highest place of honor that he knew at the time. Because his time with Jesus had been very brief. Isn't that good? He gave him the highest place of honor that he knew at the time. Prior to that, he was just a man who had healed him. But as the day day had gone by, and he'd been thinking about this, probably 24 hours later, he's going, you know what, I think there's no way anyone could do this unless he was a prophet. The third example of him speaking openly and freely was about Jesus, was in the second interrogation with the Pharisees in 24 to 34. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's quite long, and for the sake of time I won't do it. But I would suggest that you do it in your own time because it's brilliant apologetics. I mean, this guy's the first Rabbi Zacharias, this uh, blind man. And he tells off and, 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 and is able to defend himself against these religious leaders who were experts in the law and the traditions of their church. But here's the thing. He is willing to enter into hostile battlegrounds with the religious leaders despite being the complete underdog. How was he an underdog? Well... His time with Jesus had been very brief. Literally minutes of that dialogue, and then he goes off to the pole, he never saw him again. His literally minutes with Jesus. And it had only been 24 to 48 hours, depending on how you look at the text, since his healing. 
So up to this point, the name of Jesus was, was fairly insignificant and unknown to him. I mean, maybe he knew of him a little bit because when he cleansed the temple a year prior, he would have heard about that. Um, maybe when he healed the blind or the lame man at the pool of Bethesda, maybe he'd heard about that. So Jesus, he'd heard about him through the grapevine, but had no personal encounter with him. Secondly, he was an underdog because he was unmatched in education. The spiritual leaders were experts in the law and would have had large, I mean, potentially most of it memorized by heart. Uh, these guys, um, these guys would have unmatched him in parallel wisdom, and this guy was a complete joke to them. I mean, they would never have chosen him as a as a student to sit under them as a as a student um, a disciple. I mean, he was a blind beggar. He was born into sin. It was his fault. He was the way he was. So he would have never had anything to do with the Pharisees in any sort of way. But here's the cool thing about this guy: because of his experience with Christ. And because it had been so life-changing, he was able to defend the name of Jesus like a sheep in a wolf pack. Right? He's like a sheep in a wolf pack, just going to be completely devoured. But he had no fear about speaking, all because of the experience of the healing that occurred in his life. And it allowed him to declare what he did in verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And this declaration came at a huge cost. And verse 34 tells us that they put him out. So the very fate that his parents were trying to avoid, which was being excommunicated from the uh, synagogue, which was the racial identity of the Jewish people, it was the community, he said, you know what? I'm willing to freely lose that. I'll be socially ostracized for the name of Jesus Christ because, and take that heavy cost. And... Um, because of the experience in which I had through the healing that he gave me. And the, the, the initial experience with him was physical. It was a movement from darkness to light in, in his blindness. But as we see through the text from verses 1 all the way to 41, there's a, there's, a, there's a movement from darkness to light in the spiritual understanding, which will climax in uh, you know, 37 through 41. So he's on the movement towards genuine faith in Christ, but he's willing to, at every single turn, stand up and defend in the name of Jesus in his, social, in his social interaction. I think it's really important we see this as a true identity, identifying marker as a genuine Christian. And I want to give a word of encouragement and a word of warning to our church. The word of encourage, encouragement is this. If you, in your social interactions, and, it, and the opportunities you receive are defending the name of Jesus and entering into spiritual dialogue, even if you feel uneducated compared to the person you're dealing with, or you haven't had much time knowing who Jesus is, just keep going. And may the blind man be of great encouragement to you that you're on the right track with God in terms of this, this desire to proclaim his name. If you, however, and I, myself included in this, <laughs> If we are in a place where uh, we've been shrinking back, I mean, I read this to you last week, but I'll read it to you again. It's not for fear, but it's the reality of life. Oh, I will not go for it. Sorry. I know why. It's, uh, you got to play this from the start. There we go. We looked at this last week. 
but Matthew 10, 33 did say, but everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. So if we make it a practice of shrinking back and not declaring the name of Christ and giving us opportunities, we will stand before God and he will judge us accordingly. The word of encouragement though, for us in this, if we have been sort of afraid to enter into these conversations, is that we might think, well, the reason I won't do it is because I need wisdom. I don't want to get in conversation with so-and-so and so-and-so because they're on my own unmatched educationally. Maybe we can learn from this guy. He had no education and took to task and took to town and actually won. He actually won the, the, the battle in terms of like having this conversation with these guys. They resorted to anger and to uh, persecution to try to squash him. But they actually didn't theologically have a, a leg to stand on when it came to his arguments. They just, they just resorted to anger as a way of trying to like end the conversation. And maybe you think, well, I'm a new convert to Jesus. I haven't walked with him very long. Well, again, may the blind, mind, blind man be an encouragement to you because he, was a, he, was, he wasn't even, didn't have a full understanding of Jesus either yet. And within 24 to 48 hours was entering into spiritual dialogue. So why, why was he willing to go to this degree with no education and very little understanding of Christ? And I think there's something for us to learn from this man. See, the level of despair and the level of lack of hope in his life was so vast. He was destitute to a life of beggary and a life of blindness. He had never seen or seen anyone or experienced anything glorious in his life. His level of despair and hope was so low that when Christ entered his life and healed him, it changed everything. The actual experience of Jesus Christ made him change. And I know in our church, like it, I don't know if this is fair or not, but we might, I might, I might speak to you in a way that always talks about the Word of God being the priority and how we operate, and I think it is. But what separates Christianity from religion is the actual experience. To use our senses to understand who Jesus Christ is. And this is where, it's a, where Christ is beautiful and the Gospel is beautiful. Often people who are at their lowest, who are at the, at, at the most area of despair or the, have the least hope, actually understand the, Jesus Christ and the experience of His love greater. Because when you're rescued from absolute disparity and you, you actually experience the healing of God, that can transform your life and mean more to you than somebody that doesn't understand that level of despair. And this guy was, couldn't be any lower in society than he was. And the physical healing that took place and in in his experience with Christ led him to this ability to, to declare and to be bold in his statements. So if we are in a place of despair and lack of hope today, may this be an encouragement to you because it's an experience of the healing power of Jesus Christ that led this man to be able to proclaim and declare. And there's an advantage to us when almost in a way when we go through those things. Because it makes you appreciate his forgiveness more. It makes you appreciate his love more. It makes you understand his mercy more. Being like, you know, we would justly deserve punishment, but he took it on the cross for us. And I know from my own life, like, when I look at my, uh, if I put my list of sins on this board and I was to list them for you, I would shock you guys. None of you know my past. Not even my wife knows my full past. I would shock you. It would, it would make you potentially want to walk out of here. 
But here's the thing, the re God has redeemed that, and what the cool thing is, is he makes me able to relate to people who have committed, committed sins of similar uh, magnitude. And the reason is because when people tell me things, I'm like, yeah, been there, healed, been there, healed, been there, forgiven. And so I don't have to hide shamefully behind those things because I know that Christ has done that for me. So God can take the most vilest of and horrible situations and free you from those things and make you uh, excited and, 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 and thankful. And you can, um, you, can, you can publicly declare that only Jesus Christ did that for you. Second marker of his Christian testimony, which I think is very important, we can't miss him here, is his willingness to become a disciple of Jesus. So the first one was he was able, he was freely and willingly to openly proclaim the name of Christ. The second one, he is willing to become a disciple of Jesus. A disciple means learned one, okay? But we see that he's willing to desire, desire in his life, to surrender his life to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And at first it may not seem clear from the text where the blind man claimed this, but we actually can get it from verse 27 and 29. Look at 27. After going back and forth with the Pharisees and asking him, well, how did he heal you and how did Jesus open your eyes? He answered them and said, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. So two, two observations that tell you that he was willing to be a disciple of Jesus. The first one comes from his own comments. In verse 27, he says to them, um, you do not want to become his disciples too, do you? In other words, as well as, because the word too can mean also. So he's already identifying himself as a disciple of Jesus by the fact that he says to them, well, do you want to be like me and become one as well? So that's the first marker. And the second one is the Pharisees' response. They say to him, you are his disciple. So they understand that he's declaring discipleship to be a student of Jesus. And he says, but we don't belong. We have nothing to do with Jesus. We actually are disciples of Moses. And this, in other words, the irony in the whole thing was <laughs> Jesus and Moses were completely succinct, but because of their arrogance and, and um, all sorts of things, they couldn't see that. They were actually uh, not disciples of Moses at all. Jesus called them demon-possessed. So they were disciples of Satan, not Moses. That's the crazy irony. But that's religion at its best. Um, anyway, so he, but the key observation with this guy is that he was willing to come underneath Jesus' teachings. He had a desire to learn from him and take his cues for how to operate in life under Christ. And you know what's amazing about that to me? You know that he didn't even know what Jesus was going to teach him yet. He hadn't sat under his teaching before. He just met him that day, like 24, 40 hours, 40 hours earlier. Hadn't even seen him, didn't know where he went. He disappeared on him. He hadn't even heard what Jesus could possibly teach and what he was going to expect from his life. But because of the experience again of the power of his healing, he was willing to sit underneath him and to be taught by him because no one else in history had ever done for him what, what he just did for him that day. That's why he said, in verse 32, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If a man, if, if, if a man, a prophet, can do that, then he's worth submitting to in my life in terms of, uh, of um, obedience to as well. 
This is a massive application for us, and it's a true marker of a genuine Christian. We can't claim Christianity and not want to be a disciple of Jesus. <laughs> we have to be willing to sit under his teaching. And I know all of us right now are in different places in our walk with him. We all have different thoughts about him. We all have different experiences about him. We all have different opinions about him. And some of us have fully surrendered our lives, some partially, and some are maybe even unsure we can trust him yet. But the question is, is that if we want to learn from the blind man, are we willing to sit, submit ourselves to be a disciple of Christ, despite the fact that we may not know um, everything about him the way this blind man did as well? Are we willing to come underneath his teaching because he's the one that can actually bring the transformation and healing for our lives? So another probably good question then is how much do we desire to know about God's ways? And what are some of the areas that we're being challenged in right now? Are we willing to be taught by him in the area of marriage? Are we willing to understand what our role as a wife is? Are we willing to be taught by him to know what our role as a husband is? Are we willing to be taught by him to know how to parent our kids? Are we willing to be taught by him to know how to handle our finances? How about, our, how about our, if we've been exposed in our life of gossip? Are we willing to surrender that and learn from him on how to deal with that in public situations? What if we're prone to jealousy? What if we have anger issues? What if we're addicted to different chemicals or different aspects of life? How about insecurity? And probably the biggest one, how about unforgiveness? You know, I was thinking about this in practicality. People reject Jesus in a lot of ways in our culture. In fact, almost nobody we interact with are genuine Christians today. Like it's a very small percentage. But let me think, let me give you the logical, practical application if the world would adopt Christianity and become a disciple of Christ. Here's the things our culture would not have that we're also desperate to, to choose. There'd be no such thing as personal debt. If our national leaders would do it, Canada would have no uh, national uh, would have no deficit. Canada would be in surplus. No country in the world is in surplus that I know of, unless it's through extortion. <laughs> but we would have no national debt if we followed Jesus' ways. We'd have no personal debt. There would be no such thing as a welfare system. There'd be no such thing as poverty. There were no, there, an orphanage would not even exist. There'd be no such thing as a single mother. There'd be no such thing as parents without, children without two loving parents, with the exception of tragedies like, you know, cancer and maybe like, you know, accidents and so on. But if it was up to human free will, there'd be no such thing as a, a child without two loving parents. There'd be no such thing as physical abuse. There'd be no such thing as murder. There wouldn't even be a need for a prison. The jail system would not exist in Canada. There wouldn't be such thing as gossip and slander. There'd be no broken relationships because of unforgiveness. There'd be no mass shootings. There'd be no ISIS and so on and so forth. A list goes on and on and on. That is the absolute truth. If everyone was to say, we will surrender and become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't society absolutely love that? <laughs> and yet, Jesus is not the answer because we're not willing to submit ourselves to a creator, God. 
We want to do life our way. The third marker of a genuine Christian that I think we can learn from this blind man was a massive transformation in his understanding of who Jesus was. And I would use this, I'd call this an identity shift. Okay? In verse 11 of chapter 9, when he's first approached about how he was healed, he said, this man called Jesus. So Jesus at stage one is just a man. Just a, just a regular Joe Blow, just a man. Not just a regular guy. But as time goes on, he starts to shift in his thinking about who Christ is. And when, in his first interrogation, 24 hours later with the Pharisees, he moves to verse 17, a prophet. So somehow, as he's thinking about the healing, he's like, you know what, this can't be a regular guy. This guy has to be appointed by God and sent by God in order to do this. And like I said, that means now that he's, he's grasped that Jesus is more than a man. He believes now that Jesus is sent from God. And he believes that Jesus is God's spokesperson to Israel. Like when Elijah and all these guys existed, they were, they were the mouthpiece for God to the entire nation. He's now saying Jesus is Israel's messenger from God. In verse 33, he says, If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So he believes he's sent. Uh, Jesus is sent by God to be their prophet. Then we see him move from prophet to Lord and Messiah. And he believes that he's not just a prophet. He believes he's above the prophet. He believes he's the Christ. This comes after a second uh, interaction with the Pharisees and his spiritual dialogue and his argument. And in 35, Jesus heard that he'd been put out of the synagogue. He finds him. He says this, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? So again, he's, he doesn't know who the Son of Man is. He's a prophet at this point. But he's willing to believe if he can define him. Define what the Son of Man is. We've talked about this before in church, but for those of you who've forgotten or weren't here, the Son of Man is a, is a claim to be the Son of God, and as a claim to deity and to be the Messiah of Christ. As in Daniel chapter 7, it says, this is uh, Daniel speaking, um, as, my continued, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, sovereignty all over all the nations of the world. And so that people of every race and nation and language will obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. The, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, understood that Daniel 7 was the first reference to the Messiah to come. They're waiting for someone to come like him. And here he is saying, I'm the son of man. And he says, who is the Lord that I may believe in him? And I don't know if he knew the Daniel 7 passages or not, but if he did, he put two and two together and said, Jesus is this guy. His, he's the guy that's rule is eternal. He's the guy that has been given honor, authority, and sovereignty all over all the world. And they're still waiting. They're still waiting in, Ju in Jerusalem, yeah. They are. They've missed the, the just like the Pharisees and everyone else that missed the lake here, they've missed it still today. But here's the thing, when he understood that title, that it was a messianic title, he, he, it led him to do what? He says, it led him to worship him in verse 38. Now when you think of worship, we think, we're going to sing, come now is the time to worship, and we're going to sing, I surrender all. Worship in that situation is not about singing and music. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Like, like the, the, they, do a, they show that in the, 
in the movie, but they do a bad job of actually defining, showing how the worship would look like. Ben Weatherington, a commentary, commentator and professor from Kentucky, says he, he sees him probably prostrated face down on the ground. But it's a significant thing that he worshipped him. Do you know why? For a Jew, if you worshipped anyone but God, that was a stonable offense. The Old Testament, worship is reserved only for a supernatural being, God. If a man or an idol got worshipped, executed. So when he goes to move, when he moves from, from prophet to worship, he's declaring something as a Jew that only God was, 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 um, was a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> He was, he was basically, the only th- something that was reserved for God was he was now giving to Jesus Christ this adoration. And I'll give you, a, a, I'll give you how important this is because in, in Acts chapter 10, 25, when Peter, this is, so Jesus is about six months or so, I think, from crucifixion here, or maybe a year, but it's very, really close. Six months to a year in this timeline. Peter later on goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and when, when he shows up, uh, there, Cornelius bows down at Peter's feet. And I want you to see the response of Peter when he does this. As Peter entered his house, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. Same word. Peter says what? Keep going? Says, stand up! Get your ass off the ground! <laughs> right? Use our language. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. This is the Apostle Peter saying, Get up. This is not reserved for me. Jewish guy, don't worship me. That's not for me. That's for God only. Jesus stands there and says, Nothing. Keep going. It's okay. It's massive when you see this. That's significant too because one of my roles is your pastor is to teach you how to defend the gospel. That about a month ago, I was having a conversation with a man in brown sugar, in those nice leather chairs, having a nice drink, and he told me that Jesus is not God. Church attender. And I said, why? He went on this. And so I, I came out with, this, with John, and I went back and forth with him. But you know, I said, like, how then does Jesus allow worship of himself? And this is really powerful for you that love to like dissect the Bible. This word worship is only used three times in the Gospel of John. And in each time, it's in relation to God. I'll just quickly read them to you. 4.20. Chapter 4, verse 20 says this. Um, this is a discussion between God and the Samaritan woman, or Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The Samaritan woman says, you know, we Samaritans worship God at this mountain. And you say you worship God in Jerusalem. In 1220, which we're going to see later on, um, in a few weeks, there's a discussion going on here. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Here's the thing. They're coming up to worship who at the feast in in Jerusalem? God, Yahweh. And the same word occurs here in John, that he he bows down, 
or prostrates himself and worships the Lord, worships Jesus Christ. So anyway, that's to help you in your apologetics when, you, when you're talking to people who deny Jesus Christ to be deity. But this leads me to the question from this guy. If he's, a, if he's the model to us as a marker, as a, as a genuine believer who shows markers of true, identi- of true faith, the question then would be, when was the last time that we worshipped the Lord Jesus Christ? Or another way of saying it is, like really, who is Jesus to you? Is he a good teacher? Someone willing to defend? Or is he someone you're willing to defend and sit under to be a disciple? Is he someone worthy of worship? You know, I was talking to one of my friends who was Buddhist. He said to me, I love Jesus. And I said, why? He goes, well, I'm all for, like, I'm all for like, peace and all for like, you know, forgiveness. Those are great qualities. The question is, I didn't ask him this at the time. So I didn't think in these terms. But I should have said, yeah, but do you worship him? Gandhi said this, I like your Jesus. It's just your Christians I can't stand. Right? Why would Gandhi like Jesus? Well, why wouldn't you? Great, he's a fantastic moral teacher, ethical teacher. Of course you like him because your, your principles as a Buddhist or a Hindu are, are, are moving in the direction of Jesus Christ anyway. So why wouldn't you want those things? Here's a question for us, and I'm, I'm including myself. If we say that he's worthy of worship, when's the last time we did it? <coughs> When's the last time you and I basically worshiped the Lord in the same way this man did? You see, why did he worship him this way? Because he experienced the transforming power of Jesus Christ. No one ever had been able to touch his life in this way before, but Christ changed everything for him. He had a life that was reduced to a beggar, and was completely restored, and the hope was given to him for the Lord. I was thinking about this, and I don't know if this is my own thoughts or this comes from, the, from God, but I was thinking about why, why did this guy um, freely be able to worship him, and why, would, why wouldn't I or why wouldn't we be able to do it in the same way, fully abandoned like that? And then this thought came to my head, perhaps if we spent 60 seconds in hell, the 60 seconds, and God was to close off all goodness, and to give us 60 seconds in hell, when we came back, we'd wake up. Think about that. Because he, he came to rescue us from that place. Another good place to start is just think of the list of sins in your life that if I was to play on the movie screen right now and hit play, that you would not want to be played on there. I'm gonna, I'll publicly embarrass all of you, including myself, on this screen if I hit play. That's what he died for. And that's maybe would lead us to wanting to worship the Lord, because He rescued us from that. The, you know, if I were to ask you before the sermon, who do you think a model of genuine Christian faith is in the Scriptures? Who who would you pick to model someone outside of Jesus? Obviously, but you'd probably say, oh, I'd pick Paul. I'd probably pick Peter, one of the disciples. Would you ever pick the blind man? You know, Ludic Lucas said this, Nominal faith is easy. Saving faith is never easy. 
He faced all the same pressures as the neighbors. He faced all the same pressures to abandon Christ as the parents. Yet he had courage against uh, standing up for Christ with his, came to his family, the religious leaders. He took on them in debate. He defended the Lord and wished and actually received social ostracization and rejection because of his faith. This guy knew what it meant to stand up for the Lord. One of the greatest examples in all of Scripture. So I didn't write any lessons down today because it's clear from the text that these are the lessons. I mean, a genuine markers of faith, a willingness to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, and day-to-day conversations to speak openly and freely. The second one is willingness to become a disciple and sit under his teaching. And the third one is coming to know who he fully is in his identity.